Gracious Father, once again I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let me just get this out right up front. I'm going to talk about hell today. So there are lots of things I suspect that come to mind when start thinking about hell. You know, there are there are there are thoughts about you know what that looks like, and there of course there's things related to you know fire and and demons and those kinds of things. I, I saw a cartoon recently. It was by Frank and Ernest cartoon, which I think sometimes they they have some insightful things. And the two of them are are about to to enter into hell. You can tell the devil's standing there. And one says to the other, really, your biggest concern is that you wasted lots of money on harp lessons? That's, that's your biggest concern right now? We, we have all these thoughts that, that come to us as we think about this, this place that we call hell. And the reality is for lots and lots of people, hell's a very unpopular thing to think about. And quite frankly, I don't really like thinking about it all that much either. It's a place that really we'd like to avoid. It's a place that we'd, we hope to, to not really need to be a part of our conversation until we read Scripture. And when we come to Scripture, we find that the Scriptures do talk about hell. Hell's a reality. What's interesting is that there's very little talk of that in the Old Testament, but much more in the New Testament. And we find that hell is indeed a reality. If hell is not a reality, then there really is no such thing as justice. I think that's the struggle that the writer of Ecclesiastes is dealing with. When you read just even this brief passage, and of course Ecclesiastes is, you know, has a lot to say about life is meaningless and, and everything is, is, it has no purpose to it. And, and behind that, underneath that, is the sense that it doesn't seem like God is all that concerned about justice. And if we don't believe in some kind of, of eternal consequence to our, our lives, then there really is no justice. What I find fascinating is that that there are people who I know who want to say, I, I don't want to believe in hell. I don't think there's anything like that at all. But I find that even those people have some idea in their mind that there should be people who should face something like that kind of justice. Because it's built into the world that God created. There are consequences. Do we really want to worship a God who looks at evil and says, eh, no big deal? That's not the kind of God that we worship. It matters. Justice is real. Hell is a reality. C.S. Lewis said, I, I'd love to be able to eliminate the idea of hell from, from our doctrine and from our, our thinking about what it means to, to be Christians. But he said, I can't because it's supported by Scripture. It's supported by Jesus himself. It's supported by the, the history of Christendom. It's supported by reason. And it's true. Now, there are lots of things that come to our mind when we think about hell. There are 
just some of the descriptions in Scripture about hell, outer darkness, destruction, judgment, unquenchable fire, perishing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, lake of fire, second death, some really beautiful pictures that come to us when we read those things. And those are the kind of the ideas that come to us about suffering and, and this eternal punishment. And that's certainly a part of it. But as Peter Marshall, the first chaplain of the Senate, great preacher 50, 60 years ago, said, I'm not really that concerned about whether you believe in those literal descriptions of hell because the truth is, he said, I think hell's going to be far worse than that. Because when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, there will be pun- they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. The essence ultimately of hell is separation from God. That is the ultimate end of hell. It is separation from God. It is, it is the, and people will say, well, that's great because that will be fine for me because I don't want to have anything to do with God. I'll just be able to, to go about my eternal existence. And the great thing is, God won't, I won't have to think about God or be there. But what people don't understand is that to separate from God is to separate from everything and anything that is good. It's to separate from anything that is love. And people say, well, I don't know about that because I know people in this world who have nothing to do with God and they're good people, they're loving, they're kind. I know people like that too, but that's because the presence and the Spirit of God is still active in this world. God's Spirit is still working in this world that enables good to take place and people to still be somewhat kind and loving because God's presence has infused the world in which we live. But on that day and in that existence, all of that is gone completely, fully. And all you're left with is just self. So you think about being in a room of people where every single person is thinking about nothing except self. Every single person in the room is self-absorbed, only thinking about self-gratification, only thinking about self-satisfaction, only thinking about selfishness. Every thought, it's hard for us to imagine because we don't, we can't experience that right now, but every single thought of every single person and every action of every person is purely self. Everyone grasping, clutching, taking advantage of other people, everything is about self. In a sense, it is evil unrestrained. You think about all the heinous things that go on in our world now. Even with the restraint of the Spirit of God, hell is the place where all of those things and more take place and happen without the restraint of God. That's why I think the myth 
that sometimes we wrestle with that says God condemns people to hell is not exactly totally true. I'm convinced that God doesn't create hell. Scripture does not tell us that God creates hell. I think it's the place that Satan creates. I think it is the place of when you are separated from God, it is the place really of, of it's the place without anything of God. It's the place where people who do not want God will feel most comfortable, however horrific it may be. Because they don't want what heaven is. They don't want what God has described the kingdom to be. The kingdom is about self-giving, about self-love, about self-sacrifice. It's about service. It's about love. It's about giving ourselves away. It's about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's about loving others as we love ourselves. And people, there are people who simply say, I don't want that to be my eternal existence. That's why Lewis says in The Great Divorce, that hell is made up of people who choose it. Richard Mao, in one of his writings, says, we, we talk about the fact that God sends people to hell or God condemns people to hell. And we, when you say that, there's almost a, a sense in which we're saying that people are passive about it. It's some arbitrary decision that God makes. But he says that's not the way it is. People are there because they choose to be there. And it's not as if we're going to come to the the gates of eternity and we've lived all of our lives rejecting God and rejecting the nature of the kingdom and everything that is about Jesus and all that God has designed things to be. We've lived our lives rejecting that completely. And now we come to this point and say, oh, wait, I don't really want to keep doing that. We're creating an atmosphere in us that is leading to that. And it's not so much that, that God sends people or, or condemns people. It's simply that God has created a world and the kingdom that is built on relationships. The kingdom of God is all about relationship with God. Everything about the kingdom is relationship with God. And if you're going to have relationship that's rooted in love, then you have to be able to choose whether you want to follow that or not. I mean, love is always about choice. If someone puts a gun to my head and says, I want you to love that person, well, I can try to love them, but can you really say that I love them because I'm forced to do that? Love is always a choice. And the kingdom is about choosing love, about choosing the author of love, about choosing everything that God is as love. And because God's created a kingdom and a world that he wants relationship with us, then it has then people have to have the ability to choose not to, to embrace that. And that's the out- outcome of it, as heartbreaking as it is. Of course, that brings us then to the, the, the question of what about people who've never heard about Jesus? 
What about people who haven't really rejected Jesus? They don't know anything about Jesus. Quite frankly, on one hand, we don't really know about that. That that is going to eventually be in the hands of God who is good and fair and just and righteous. But at the same time, something in me says that that's a place in which we will see maybe more clearly than ever the mercy of God. As I step back and I think about my own life, one of the key reasons why I have become a follower of Jesus, at the heart of that, at the core of that, the foundation of that, is that I was raised in a home that taught me about Jesus. I was raised in a home where I knew who Jesus was and everything about life was related to understanding and following Jesus and it set a direction for my life. I have always known about Jesus. And so I have the privilege of knowing Jesus and choosing to follow Jesus. But there are billions of people through the ages and even now who have never had that opportunity. And it's hard for me to to believe and to fathom that our eternal existence is rooted in something like what family we were born in. I don't know exactly how God is going to address that, but in his wisdom, in his ultimate knowledge, and in his mercy and grace, God will. God will handle that. Now we might say, well then, if that's the case, then why do we worry about evangelism? Why do we worry about Missions, why do we worry about telling people if God's going to handle that? Because the the impetus for sharing Christ with people is not really so much about their eternal destiny. It's that we want people to to know the grace of God in their lives now and be set free from the bondage of sin now. We want people to experience abundant life in Christ now. We want people to know the freedom and the joy and the peace of Christ now. It's fascinating to me that when Jesus comes, he talks about eternity. No doubt about that. But the work that Christ does is in people's lives in the moment. Transforming them in the moment. He says, I've come to give life abundant And what motivates us and what, what, what is the passion for us to help people come to know Christ is not just so that they can escape eternal punishment, but so that people can know the joy of Christ in their lives now as we have. We want them to know the freedom of life in Christ and the peace of life in Christ and the joy of life in Christ the fullness of the spirit of life in Christ so that their lives are defined by the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. But you see, this is not just about people who have never heard. Because as I read somewhere, sometimes the church doesn't give doesn't present to people the fruit of the spirit sometimes the fruit we present is wax fruit a poor imitation and the burden on the church is not just that we take the gospel to people who've never heard but the burden on the church also is 
the image of Christ that we are presenting to people. I'm convinced that there are people in this world who are rejecting God, not because they're rejecting the, the biblical view of God, but they're rejecting the skewed view of God that sometimes the church presents to people. And now that comes back on us. What kind of image are we presenting? What kind of God are, are we putting in front of people? What, what image of Christ are people addressing when they think about whether they want to follow him or not? And that comes back on the church, upon you and me. Sometimes we have become, the church has been a bit arrogant about the whole conversation about hell. And there's almost in us a sense of joy that there are people who are going to spend eternal punishment in a place like hell. And yet when I look at Jesus in Luke 19, and in that, as he's entering that last week of his life and he stands above Jerusalem and, and looks over the city knowing all of the pain and the heartache that they're going to go through by rejecting him, he weeps. There are people who said about Dwight Moody, the great evangelist of the 19th century, that he was one of the few people they could ever listen to talk about hell because every time he talked about hell, he could not keep himself from weeping. His heart was broken that there might be people who would face that kind of eternal punishment. And the thing that we have to keep in mind is that when Jesus talks about hell, and when Jesus talks about eternal punishment, more often than not, he's not addressing people who have no knowledge of God. He's addressing the very people who claim to have the most knowledge of God. And that ought to be sobering to us as we think about our witness, as we think about the image that we are giving to people about who God is and what God desires for them. Because I think that's the heart of God for people. I don't think God stands in his eternal, sits on his eternal throne and rubs his hands in glee that there are people who are going to face that kind of eternal judgment. I think it breaks his heart. Isn't that what we see in Jesus? When the prophets proclaim the warnings for the people and the judgment that is coming upon them, I, I think that that what they're really doing is trying to fight as much as they can to keep people from experiencing where their behaviors are leading them to. But I think God is doing that with us continually. I think that's God's heart for the world. It is broken for them. That's why Jesus comes. Jesus comes because, he, because God loves the world. 
Jesus comes because he wants the world to know his grace and his goodness and life abundant. Jesus comes and even goes to the cross that people might be set free even eternally from the consequences of where their life is headed. And if that's the heart of God, it seems to me that ought to be the heart of God's people. I mean, it's true what Lewis says in, in Mere Christianity, that in the end, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. And I'm convinced that God says that with a pleading, broken heart. And every person who may choose to reject him never gets away from his love. He is, he goes, he is after people. He is seeking people. He is reaching out to people, doing everything possible to change their mind and to draw them to himself. And he has called us to be his image bearers, to do that very same thing in a world that sometimes doesn't even know what they're doing. And it ought to break our hearts, literally break our hearts, that there are people who would choose anything other than the love of Christ. And as we sang earlier, may God have mercy on us if it doesn't. Maybe the question for us today is not I wonder what hell is like. And maybe the question for us is not, how do we figure out who's going to have to endure that? Maybe the question for us is, what can we do? How can we live in such a way that people would be drawn to the love of our Heavenly Father? that they might experience his grace and his mercy, his love and his life. Not just eternal life someday, as awesome as that will be, but abundant life this day. Holy Father, forgive us Forgive us for the sins that, that keep us from the deepest relationship possible with you. And forgive us for the times when our hearts have been apathetic, even hardened about people who rejected you or don't even know you. Stir our hearts anew. Break us. Soften us. Change us. That we might bear the image of Christ. So people might know abundant life in you. 
now and eternally. Amen.